Our next session, insha'Allah, is a roundtable discussion regarding visions of tomorrow, miraculous prophecies. Given that the theme of our entire conference is the miracles of the Messenger of Allah وسلم, it's necessary that we speak about the subject of prophecies as well. Prophecies that have been made from the time of the Messenger of Allah وسلم, that have come true in his lifetime, prophecies that have come true from the time of the Messenger of Allah وسلم, until now, prophecies that are coming true today in this day and age, and prophecies that are soon to come. Understanding these will allow us to fix our framework on our in our life and understand the big picture of how Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala decreed this world to be. Our speakers that are in front of us today are currently Sheikh Tahseen Khan and Mufti Zishan Ahmed, who are scholars that have been invited to speak about this topic and make it understandable for us. We ask that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala protect them, allow them their hearts to be expanded, and allow them to be able to speak that which we need to hear and allow them to be protected from all sorts of evil. So please turn your attention to them, fill in the, sk the spaces in front of you, and inshallah we will now have Mufti Zishan and uh, Sheikh Tahseen. Hafidahumallah. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Alhamdulillahi rabbil alameen. Wa afdal wa salati wa tammu taslimi ala sayyidina wa maulana Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'in. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. So before we actually begin speaking about uh, the prophecies of the Prophet Muhammad وسلم, I think it's important that we kind of explain the significance and the actual definition of a mu'jiza or what we usually refer to as a miracle. This will help set up the understanding of the technicality of this word in all its connotations uh, since the entire conference is based on that. So perhaps what we can do is we can begin with a, an analogy. Uh, this analogy is actually used by the ulama, by the scholars in books of Aqidah, and so that you understand the role of a miracle in relation to the Prophet وسلم, and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So here we're going to make an analogy. Imagine a king comes to town and he settles in one of his palaces and he comes to the balcony to speak to the townspeople. However, instead of speaking to the townspeople, he sends a messenger onto the, the road right in front of the balcony. And this messenger says to the townspeople that I have been sent by the king that all of you should do such and such. Th these are the orders of the king for you. And the townspeople say, they ask him, well, who are you? How do we know that you're the messenger of the king? And then he says, okay, do you see the king over there on the top of the balcony? And they say, yes. 
Okay, so when I look towards the king, he's going to sit up and down seven times. Uh, he's going to sit up from his throne and then sit back down, sit, uh, stand up, sorry, sit back down seven times in a row. And then you'll know that I am his messenger. So they all look up to the king on the balcony, and lo and behold, he does exactly that. He sits up and down seven times. A very strange act, a very abnormal occurrence for the king. But nevertheless, the king does it. What do the townspeople learn from this action? They learn that the king has validated the claim of the messenger, that this messenger truly is the messenger of the king. And so this is the exact analogy that the ulama have used with the role that a miracle plays between the, the connection, the relationship between the Messenger of Allah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam and Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala. That when a, a miracle occurs at the hands of a Prophet, then it is a validation by Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala of that Messenger's claim. And what is his claim? That I am a Messenger of Allah. So now we understand now the dalala, the indication of a miracle. From here, it's important that we define what we mean by mu'jizah. Like I said, loosely, we usually translate it just as miracle. But that is not very accurate, and you'll see why in a moment. In the Quran itself, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala never, never uses the word mu'jizah, even though we, it's, very, it's become very common for us to use it. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala never uses this word. Rather, He uses mainly two other words to describe mu'jizah. One is bayinat, and the other one is ayat. For example, when he says, That I have sent, we have sent our messengers with clear signs. And then in another ayah, he says, Ayah here is in the meaning of a miracle. Then when the people are, whenever the people are, see a miracle, an ayah, they turn away and say, same old magic, that same recurring magic. And so what we learn from this, that mu'jizah is a technical term that the ulama have derived based on what a miracle intends. And they defined it with a very precise definition. And that definition is, and I'll go through it in a second, amrun khariqun lil'ada makroonun bittahaddi ma'a adamil mu'aradah a mu'jizah by definition is a matter amr khariqan lil'ada that it is a rupture in the norm norm here is in the meaning of the physical laws of the universe norm here does not mean what the people may be accustomed to seeing or hearing norm here specifically means that there a rupture has occurred in the physical laws of nature. Kharqan lil ada. What's also important to keep in mind here is ada means what is normally impossible. 
not rationally impossible. And this is a huge distinction that people cannot make, and so they misunderstand what a miracle is and what a miracle cannot be. Again, خَارِقًا lil'ada. Ada here in this definition of mu'jizah does not mean rationally impossible things. It only means normally impossible things. What is the difference? The difference is this. If I say to you that imagine that every day in the morning when you wake up and you look at the sky, the clouds are green. They're not white. Can you imagine such a thing? You can. Your mind readily conceives green clouds. It can picture it. Yet, it's something that we never have, probably have never witnessed. And we don't, and nor has anyone before us probably witnessed it. But nevertheless, your mind has the capacity to conceive of such a thing. But it's normally impossible. Now contrast this to an example of something that is rationally impossible, not uh, normally impossible, rationally impossible. And the example of that is, imagine if I tell you that the car right there on the road is at motion, is, is in motion and at rest at the same time with respect to the ground that it's on. Can you imagine that? No. Your mind cannot conceive of how a car on the road can be both in motion and at rest at the very same time. Why? Because your mind understands the definition of motion, it understands the definition of rest, and it knows that the two are contradictories. And based on the principle of law, uh, the, the law of non-contradiction, which is a first principle of logic, you know immediately that this is something that your mind cannot conceive of. So a miracle, going back to miracle, the definition of a miracle, that the rupture will always be in that which is normally impossible. Never will you ever hear that a prophet brought a miracle that was a rupture in something that is rationally impossible. Mustahil aqli. It will never be in, in that category. It will always be from the category of mustahil adi. So it's important to keep, bear in mind. The definition continues. That this rupture in the norm, this miraculous supernatural event, occurs at the hands of, a, of, of an individual who claims to be a prophet. This is part of the definition of a mu'jizah. And if you understand this, this part, you will then understand why when you hear supernatural feats being conducted by sorcerers or magicians or astrologists or palm readers or tarot card readers or psychics, all these do not fulfill the definition of a mu'jizah. Even the karamat of the awliya, the friends of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, they're not accompanied their supernatural feats are not accompanied by a claim to prophethood. Rather, magicians and sorcerers, they always, even in, uh, even in society today by non-Muslims, they're always looked at as something dark, not callers of truth, not callers to good, and people who forbid evil. The, these people are always seen in a dark light, something evil about them. And there's a reason for that. So, Moving along with the definition that it should be accompanied with a claim to prophethood, 
And then the, the definition finally ends with that the claim that, that the, the miracle should be void of any proper legitimate rebuttal. So for example, it can never be the case that a prophet performs a miracle and then that miracle gets replicated in the exact same way and in the same mode and manner. Or somebody determines how this was done through signs. The miracle, by definition, will never be from this category. So now that we understand the definition of mu'jiza, we understand how it differs from uh, magic, how it differs from the karamat of the, the friends of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Now, why is this important? So we understood that it's a validation from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala of the prophets. There's a book called Modern Egypt by a famous British statesman from the late 1800s, early 1900s by the name of Lord Cromer. Lord Cromer was a British statesman. He did uh, policy making in Egypt at the turn of the century. And he has this book called Modern Egypt that he wrote in 1907 or 1908. And in this book, he writes what he believes needs to be done in order for people to have control of the Muslims. And he lists six or seven things in here. And amongst the things that he lists in this book, keep in mind, this book is like 110 years old, 120 years old. And he writes in here that if we want to control these people, i.e. the Arabs, the Muslims living in Arabia and, and in Egypt, then one of the things he says, mentions there, is that we need for the Muslims to become deists, to adopt deism. Does anybody know what deism here means? One of my students should know this. Adnan. Very good, mashallah. Deism is a belief that you do believe in a creator. But your belief is that after this crea creator created the universe, it doesn't intervene with the universe thereafter. So Lord Cromer said that he, we're okay with Muslims saying that they believe in God. We're fine with that. In fact, we want that. Because if they believe in God, usually... That's accompanied by a moral code. And we want order to be in their society. We don't want their society to be chaotic. But what we don't want is for them to believe in the Prophet. We don't want them to believe, or even if they do believe in, in the Prophet they don't believe, uh, they don't really believe in his miracles. They don't really believe that the revelation that he brought, that it's really a revelation from Allah, that it's just maybe a book that he wrote. That's what we want, because then we can, we can dictate to them what we want them to believe. But so long as they hang on, and they truly believe that this man, Muhammad ibn Abdullah was a prophet from Allah, and that this Qur'an is really, really, truly the book of Allah, and that these miracles that the, that the Prophet um, did, that they were truly ruptures in the norm, then we're going to have a problem. And so this is 
being dictated openly in, the pl in plain sight that they want you to not believe in anything metaphysical. And so now you understand why it's important for you to understand why we believe in miracles, how we define miracles, and the importance of it. And from here, we'll finally get to where we, uh, the exact subject matter of our talk here tonight, uh, which is specifically the knowledge, uh, the prophecies of the Prophet Um Conveying the matters of the unseen is, falls under the bracket of mu'jizatun nabi. It falls under the bracket of the miracles of the Prophet. So every, um, every occurrence of him prophesizing will count as a mu'jizah. So from here, after this long introduction about uh, defining mu'jizah, keep in mind, uh, right there on the slido.com, we have the code number 2253727. Milana Farhan said that if anybody wants to send in questions anonymously regarding this topic or any of the other topics that you've heard, uh, you, have, you can do so, and inshallah we'll address it in the Q&A session. So from here, I, I want to go into now, um, I'm, I will ask my panelists here, uh, participants, discussants, to speak now about the prophecies, the actual prophecies of the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Inshallah, we'll begin. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim, salatu wassalamu ala rasulillah wa ala alihi wa sahabatihi wa man wa Inshallah, um, I'll take the, uh, the role of moderator, I guess, inshallah, for, to, for, for some um, time, inshallah, uh, and just ask our panelists here uh, in regards to some of the questions that uh, come up usually in regards to this. And so, um, Malana Tahseen very beautifully addressed more of the aqidah, uh, perspective in regards to our beliefs uh, about the signs of the Day of Judgment or the, the miracles of the Prophet ﷺ uh, in regards to the signs of the Day of Judgment. Um, and I'll just, I just wanted to turn it over to Mufti Zishan uh, and ask specifically in regards to um, the, the, the signs of the Prophet ﷺ or the signs of the Day of Judgment that the Prophet ﷺ prophesied about during his lifetime. Um, you know, kind of more of a conversation starter, uh, if you think about it and put ourselves for a moment, uh, put ourselves into the time of the Prophet ﷺ and imagine ourselves that uh, Wahi is coming down to the Prophet ﷺ, every ayah of Qur'an is like live breaking news uh, and then the Prophet ﷺ mentions certain signs in the future that will take place. Uh, I'm just wondering as someone that's looking on, how would that affect the Sahaba? And how would that actually, um, uh, you know, manifest itself for a companion of the Prophet ﷺ, what that would look like? Uh, and, and from what we know from the hadith of the Prophet ﷺ, what, actually, what actual effect did it have on the life of the Sahaba radiallahu anhum? Now, the, the point of this question is not just uh, to hear how it affected the life of the, the Sahaba. But really for us, because we're in the same position, in the sense that we're also hearing about the signs of the Day of Judgment and prophecies that the Prophet ﷺ mentioned, how should it affect us? So we're looking at this, the Sahaba and seeing how it affected them and taking a look 
into our lives and seeing is it affecting us like the way it affected the Sahaba radiallahu anhum. So for this, inshallah, I'll ask Mufti Zishan to kind of shed light a little bit about how uh, the Sahaba were affected uh, by the signs that the Prophet sallallahu was mentioning, how it affected their psyche, how it affected and how it manifested in their life. Alhamdulillah wa salatu wa salamu ala rasulillah Rabbi shrahni sadri wa yassir li amri wa hlul uqtatan min lisani yafqahu qawli Allahumma allimna ma yinfa'una wa infa'una bima allamtana wa zidna ilma ameen Amma ba'd assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh So I think this is a very important question Jazakumullah khairan Shaykh Tahseen for the beautiful introduction and a very important introduction because unfortunately what happens nowadays is people read some of the miracles of the Prophet I know we're talking about prophecies, but specifically regarding miracles, sometimes people read some of the things that the Prophet did, or some things that are mentioned in the Quran, and then they're kind of a little bit skeptical, that how could this have actually happened? And um, unfortunately this has really big theological implications if a person were to question how, you know, some, especially if something is clearly mentioned in the Quran, something is clearly mentioned uh, regarding a miracle of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala or we know something to the ahadith regarding a miracle of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam of course uh, if someone denies that right that's going to have a big implication on their faith and so you have people nowadays who say like you know uh, about the for example the uh, the the naqa of Thamud the huge camel of Thamud how could there be a huge camel that you know is like uh, so big and so large and then there's so many different things about how is you know how did the moon split or this and that right so many different things that they question because they can't wrap their minds around it but that is the point of a miracle right that is the point that it goes against the custom and therefore it proves that the Prophet is actually true because we cannot do that thing, right? If the Prophet just said, go ahead, you know, uh, I'm a Prophet, and we said, how do you know you're a Prophet? And he said, okay, I can lift my right leg. No one's going to believe him because everyone else, you know, uh, can lift their right leg as well. But like the example that he gave, that if he says the king is going to stand up and sit down seven times and the king does that, that most likely is something related. Uh, he's, he's a messenger on behalf of the king. Now, how does that translate into Mulana Uthman's question? The Sahaba radiallahu anhum, they believed in the Prophet sallallahu not just because of the miracles or because of the prophecies that they saw. Yes, that definitely helped. But they also saw in the life of the Prophet sallallahu his character, how he was, how amazing of an individual that he was. You know, so that's kind of like the first the first thing, right? So even if they didn't see a miracle, or even if they didn't see something or a prophecy that was fulfilled, they still knew that he was the most truthful person. It's like Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu was the best friend of the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam. He didn't have to see any miracle or have to hear any prophecy in order to understand that the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam was truly a messenger on behalf of Allah subhanahu wa taala. Right, so before I get to that question, I want to address this point because I think it's a very uh, uh, pertinent point as well. That, you know, what are some of the proofs that the Prophet ﷺ really was sent from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala? Right, if someone says, oh, because the Quran says so, is that really a valid argument to a, uh, someone who doesn't believe in Allah, to someone who's not a Muslim? They're going to say, well, I don't believe in the Quran. Right, the Prophet ﷺ, there's so many proofs as to how he was truly a prophet, right? For example, 
a leader or someone who's claiming to be a prophet, he's not just going to say, or rather, he, he's going to try to take the easy way out, right? He's not going to, the way that you gain followers is not by saying, oh, do this difficult thing, do this difficult thing. But that's what the Prophet ﷺ was doing with the Sahaba, radiallahu anhu, right? Life was very difficult for them. Life was very difficult in Mecca where the Quraysh were persecuting them, oppressing them. The Prophet ﷺ was given the opportunity that, look, we'll give you whatever we want, whatever you want. We'll give you money, we'll give you women, just stop calling to your God. Or you could call to your God one year, we'll call to our God one year. The Prophet ﷺ did not compromise, right? So someone who was not sent by Allah, they would just compromise in that situation, right? But the Prophet ﷺ did not. The Prophet ﷺ was someone that was protected. This is a miracle from Allah, right? Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says that, Allahu ya'asimuka minan nas, that Allah will protect you from the people. Think about it, the people at the, at the time of the Prophet wasallam, the Quraysh could have easily killed the Prophet wasallam. Yes, he was being given protection from his uncle Abu Talib and from different, uh, you know, his, because of him being from the Quraysh and things like that. But the Quraysh could have easily, you know, people who did not like the Prophet wasallam could have easily killed him. Yet Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala protected him. There's so many different signs, right? There's different angles you can tackle this from. But now to get to Mulana Uthman's question, that what about these signs, right? What about these prophecies? After they knew that this was truly a prophet of Allah, they knew that, they recognized that even without the signs, even without the prophecies, but imagine how much stronger their faith became when they saw these prophecies coming true, right? It's just like Ibrahim alayhi salam, Ibrahim obviously believed in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. There's no doubt about that. But he asked Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to give him a sign. Show me how you give life to the death, to the dead. And you know, he took the birds and we know the, uh, he put pieces on different areas, different mountains, and they all came into one, they, they came back to life. Ibrahim did not need that. He, was a, he already knew that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is real. He already knew that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gives life to the dead. But it increases one in their conviction. right? It, can, it increases one in the strength of their iman when they see something unfolding before them. So the Sahaba radiallahu anhum, when the Prophet wasallam is miracle after miracle, right? giving them miracle after miracle and telling them prophecies and they're seeing these things coming. Right? Imagine how strong that made their faith, that made their iman. Right? So this is uh, uh, one of the benefits. Right? One of the benefits. Of course, the prophecies are given to us in order to teach us about things that are going to happen. Right? But when we see those things happen, right, that increases our, in, our, in our conviction that this truly is a messenger of Allah subhanahu, a messenger from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So I think this was one of the, this is one of the ways that it must have um, obviously it affected the Sahaba radiallahu anhum. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says in the Quran that when they saw the ahzam, right, when they saw the, the troops, they said, right, this is what Allah and His Messenger promised us, right, and Allah and His Messenger are truthful. So they knew that when they saw different things happening that the Prophet ﷺ was telling them were going to happen, it obviously increased them in their faith and they understood that this is truly something, uh, that this is truly a prophet from Allah. Jazakumallah khairan. I mean, something that comes to mind um, in regards to the iman of the Sahaba. Uh, nowadays we hear and we read about the ahadith 
um, that we see happening in our times, the signs of the Day of Judgment, and that's kind of the focus on this session, the how, uh, what the Prophet ﷺ said about the signs of the Day of Judgment and how we see it happening right in front of our eyes today. Um, and so sometimes we read these ahadith, for some of us, uh, we read these ahadith and we've seen it happen right in our lifetime. So for example, the hadith in which the Prophet ﷺ mentions uh, that the people of the desert uh, they will build buildings and they will compete in the building of tall buildings. Now, for a companion of the Prophet ﷺ, again, if we could for a moment transport ourselves back to the time of the Prophet ﷺ, and imagine yourself sitting in a gathering of the Prophet ﷺ, and the Prophet ﷺ said uh, that the people of the desert uh, they are shepherds, they have nothing on their feet, basically they're poor, disheveled, but they're competing in the building of high buildings. What was the concept of high buildings in the time of the Prophet ﷺ? Right? Even the fact, uh, if you think about historically, what were the tallest buildings in the time of the Prophet ﷺ? And you can think about it and go back and maybe think the pyramids and maybe something else, but uh, specifically in Medina, we know that the Prophet ﷺ even looked at a second story of a companion's house with some disappointment, some sort of disappointment, because it showed uh, the level of, uh, not love of dunya, but uh, the fact that a companion was uh, spending his time, wealth, and money in uh, investing in the second floor of a building. Now that's something that's absolutely permissible. But why did the Prophet ﷺ uh, look at that with disappointment. And the reason for that, uh, ulama explained, is because the Prophet ﷺ knew that the Sahaba had uh, a higher and a more uh, you know, virtuous journey and a virtuous task at hand. And if they became involved uh, in the things of the dunya, then it would take away from the, the mission of the Prophet ﷺ in having the Sahaba go out and spread the message of Islam. So is it impermissible to have a second floor to your house? Absolutely not. But why did the Prophet ﷺ look at it with disappointment? Because he had something else in mind for that companion or for the Sahaba that they have to go throughout the world and spread the deen. And so I just mentioned that as a side note. Going back to what I was saying, in the city of the Prophet ﷺ, there was rarely a building with a second floor on it. So when the Sahaba hear that the people of the desert will compete in building high buildings, they had absolutely no idea and maybe no even concept of what we see today. And so um, many years ago, I was kind of into this topic and I looked up how different commentators of hadith commentated on that hadith. Because during the, the lifetime of Islam, over the 1400 years, even the interpretation of that hadith must have changed. In the time of the Prophet ﷺ, the Sahaba thought of it in one way. And then a few hundred years down the line, when there are maybe more buildings and different ways of looking uh, at, at, at structures, uh, those um, commentators of hadith must have seen it as another way. But anyways... It's very interesting to see Ibn Hajar Asqalani rahimahullah as well as Imam Nawawi passed away hundreds of years ago but uh, kind of the sign of their intellect and their genius. They said even though this seems very impossible uh, but 
it seems as if Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will bless, bless the, peer, the, the, the people of the, of the desert and they will then be able to construct and compete in the building of high buildings. So going back to what I was saying, I was saying just imagine the iman of the sahaba, hearing something that today doesn't seem outrageous. For you and I, it's, we see it in front of our eyes. But in the time of the sahaba radiallahu anhum, how uh, strange that must have been and how strong their iman has, must have been for them to take it without even uh, thinking about it to know this, this is definitely a sign of the day of judgment that this will happen. So anyways, um, I'll, I'll throw this back over to Sheikh Tahseen. Um, one of the most famous hadith about the day of judgment and the signs of the day of judgment is the hadith of, of Jibreel والسلام, when Jibreel والسلام, comes to the Prophet وسلم, in the shape of a man. So in that hadith, the Prophet ﷺ, uh, in that hadith, um, uh, Jibreel ﷺ discusses with the Prophet ﷺ, asks the Prophet ﷺ about the Day of Judgment and its signs. And the Prophet ﷺ mentioned two signs, or Jibreel ﷺ mentioned two signs of the Day of Judgment uh, in that hadith. So I just wanted to ask Sheikh Tahseen, maybe you can elaborate a little bit about this hadith uh, and then mention the two signs and anything about it that comes to mind, inshallah. So before I begin, I actually wanted to comment on something Mufti Zishan mentioned, which was the psychological effect, or the, or the spiritual effect, rather, that happened to the Sahaba as they were seeing these miracles unfold. And it reminds me that in Sharh um, Sahih Muslim of Imam al-Nawawi, he mentions on the very first page of his commentary on Sahih Muslim that the Prophet according to his um, uh, research, uh, around if you include almost all types of narrations, he said there was around 1,200 miracles that he performed. Sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. 1,200. Now, if you take the number 1,200 and then divide it by the number of weeks that the Prophet Sallallahu um, after receiving Nubuwa until he passed away, it actually works out as one miracle per week of his life. So you can only imagine that literally, if we wanted to do it like um, in, in a, um, you know, like a, a consistent manner, not a week went by that they either heard or witnessed a miracle themselves. So it was something that was being reinforced in their psyche. And you can only imagine the spiritual uh, impact that something like that can happen. That Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is not just affirming that this man, this messenger, is truly the messenger. But rather, he is affirming, reaffirming, and reaffirming, and reaffirming. And so that's, um, in fact, some of the, the ulama, they even mentioned that for the claim of a prophet to being a prophet, uh, for being a prophet of Allah, it should not just be one miracle. They say that it should be more than one, so that it excludes any chance of coincidence. And so here, forget one, two, three, you have 1,200. And he specifically mentions, Imam Anawi, rahimahullah, he mentions that this is 1,200, we're not even including the Qur'an here, just 1,200 by themselves, outside of the Qur'an. And so this is a, a very, truly something uh, amazing. And then the bulk of the 1,200 miracles, as other scholars have explained, the bulk of them were actually prophecies. Uh, predictions that the Prophet ﷺ made about the future. Now, think about that for a moment. That 
na'udhu billah if the prophet was a false prophet na'udhu billah then what why would he ever want to predict what's going to happen 200 years from now 500 years from now 1000 years from now what direct benefit would it give him and the people who are in front of him it really wouldn't in fact he would be taking a risk that why am i speaking about something that doesn't really pertain to the people in front of me because it's going to come much later or even if it is going to come in a few years or soon i'm taking a huge risk talking about what's what is to occur in the future why not just stick with what's going on right now and uh you know try to convince and persuade the people to believe in my false message so this shows you the distinction between a true prophet and a false prophet a true prophet he knows he's a true prophet and so there's no risk involved it's risk free because the message is coming directly directly from allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and so this is also very important to keep in mind uh as allah subhanahu wa ta'ala himself says tilka min anba'il ghaib nuhiha ilayk that these are some of the manners of the unseen of al ghaib that we have we, that we reveal to you o prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam and so now um the hadith of jibril everybody is aware of the the famous uh, hadith the the incident regarding when jibril alayhi salam came to the prophet in the form of a man and he asked him uh, questions about islam iman ihsan and then asked him well, when will the day of judgment be and then finally the very last thing that jibril alayhi salam asks the prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam before leaving is fa akhbirni an amaratiha so inform me about its signs meaning the signs of the hour and the prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam says qal antalida al-amatu rabbataha that's the first thing he mentions that the slave woman will give birth to her uh, master or or mistress the, so in other words to to understand it that the slave woman will give birth and her child will go on to becoming her master and then the second thing that he mentions is that wa antara al hufat al urat al alat riaa asha yatatawaluna fi al bunyan that you will see when you see the barefoot uh the naked and the um sorry the barefoot naked they're all uh sifat barefoot naked and destitute shepherds competing with one another in forming tall buildings as malano usman just discussed now the question immediately arises that why in such you can imagine if you were in that setting where you saw a man jibril alayhi salam come to the prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam and ask him these questions and then in return the prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam only answers it by giving two signs and remember in the hadith literature there's hundreds of signs but why in this moment did he restrict himself to just two what is peculiar about these two or so peculiar about these two that it deserved mention as opposed to any other and so recent scholar by the name of habib habib abu bakr al adani he passed away last year rahimahullah famous uh, yemeni scholar 
He was a specialist in uh, signs of the Day of Judgment. He investigates into this topic as to why these two were, were mentioned. And he concludes as part of his research that the reason why only these two were mentioned because they actually represent two broad categories or two uh, themes, if you want to call it, that are found almost in all of the signs that the Prophet ﷺ related about the signs of the Day of Judgment. These two are, one is the um, uh, deterioration of knowledge, and the other one is the, or degradation rather, degradation of knowledge and degradation of hukum, authority. So he says that the vast amount of hadiths that talk about the signs of the Day of Judgment, they relate to either or both uh, degradation of authority or degradation in knowledge. How did he derive that from here? He derived it by saying that uh, Ibn Hajar al-Asqalani, rahimahullah, in his commentary on this hadith, he mentions that one of the reasons one of the explanations for a slave girl giving birth to her child who one day becomes her master is that it shows um, that the children will become so um, uh, disobedient to their parents that they will assume as if they're the ones in charge and the parents are, there, are subject to them or subservient to them. So you see an inversion in authority there. Or another meaning is that a time will come where people will be so ignorant about who about the, the sharia or so ignorant about even keeping ties with kinship that he won't even or she won't even recognize that this is, uh, that this is his mother and he will just assume, take her as a slave. So this shows a degradation in, in knowledge. And then the other one, the, other, the second mention of seeing the barefoot, naked, destitute shepherds competing with one another in the uh, form, forming of tall buildings, that shows a degradation in authority. That you had these people that no one would ever expect them to rise to such heights. But they will assume power, even though they're not deserving of it. Or no one would have thought them to assume power. So this is really important. And why this is important in our times is because what we're witnessing today is exactly this. How? We live in an, era, uh, in an era right now where we have a standardization of public education, which was not something that was around, you know, it's still not around in many villages, you know, from the countries that we're from. Standardization of public education, where everybody gets the, the opportunity to finish a, a recognized standard curriculum of learning. We also live in an age of mass literacy. Humanity has never seen an era where more people have been literate. And then finally, the third thing that we've witnessed is mass communication, mass media, where literally if something happened in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, you could find out about it so long as you had a Twitter account within minutes. Yet, despite all these things that I just mentioned, public education, public literacy, mass media, you would think that knowledge is abound, and everyone has access to knowledge. Therefore, everyone should be knowledgeable. But what are we witnessing? The exact opposite. Despite having, because act, remember, 
Access to knowledge is not the same thing as understanding knowledge. Access to knowledge just means that you have access to data points, to information. But to properly vet and to, uh, to verify knowledge is, and then to further understand it is a matter altogether different. And so one should never think that just because you have access to information, that makes you knowledgeable. It's not the case. And then likewise, there's an intrinsic connection between knowledge and authority. They go hand in hand. If knowledge is in a state of degradation, then you can count on it that authority will, will follow into degradation immediately after. Because if you don't have the knowledge, the know-how, to run society based on true knowledge, then authority will be also inverted. And so we can name mention, we can make mention of many uh, narrations. In fact, maybe I, I, I there's many, so I'll just mention a few here. Um, so for example, it is narrated that the Prophet of Allah sallallahu said, I'll skip directly to the English for the sake of time. Verily, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala does not take away knowledge by snatching it from the people, but he takes it away by taking away the lives of religious scholars till none of the scholars stay, stays alive. Then the people will take ignorant ones as their leaders, who when asked to deliver religious verdicts, will issue them without knowledge, the result being that they will go astray and will lead others astray. Another hadith. There will be rulers after me whose evil and malevolence will deceive the people. Whoever affirms their lies and helps their wrongdoing, I disavow myself from him and he is disavowed from me. When, true, when trust is lost, then wait for the hour. How is the trust lost, lost O Messenger of Allah, sallallahu alayhi wa When authority is given to those who do not deserve it, then wait for the hour. And there's many, and there's many books that have been written. I don't need to get into all of them, but just for the sake of example, I wanted to mention, now we understand from this interpretation the importance of sustaining, maintaining, and building knowledge, true knowledge, and authority, legitimate authority. So inshallah, I'll, I'll pass it on. Jazakumullah khairan. Very interesting insight into the hadith of Jibreel alayhi salatu salam. Jazakumullah khairan. I'm going to uh, switch gears really, really quickly and just for a short time. I'm just going to uh, introduce our panelists because I don't think it was done uh, before. And so uh, just to quickly introduce our panelists, uh, it's round table. There's no really, you know, set uh, schedule or standard we have to follow. So uh, hopefully that's okay. Um, Sheikh Tahseen, mashallah, tabarakallah, uh, has uh, most, most of the time when you hear a scholar being introduced, you hear about the one school or maybe two, at, ma at most three or four schools that they studied in. Uh, but something that's very interesting, mashallah, tabarakallah, is that Sheikh Tahseen uh, studied privately uh, with a number of shuyukh uh, throughout his whole life. And a lot, another thing that we normally hear uh, alongside when a scholar is introduced is how long their course of study was. Um, and this is also something very unique about Sheikh Tahseen. It wasn't a set program uh, that took a few years, uh, you know, or it could be a four-year course or a six-year course, or like here at Darussalam we have a seven-year course. Uh, but 
Um, a lot of the times we'll hear shorter courses, right? Like a two-year thing or a one-year thing. But mashallah, tabarakallah, um, Sheikh Tahseen studied privately uh, for well over a decade, well over 15 years privately with shuyukh, uh, completing the Dars Nilami. So all of the books that are studied, he studied it privately uh, as he, um, you know, out of his own um, fervor and all out of his own passion for learning the deen of Islam. By trade, he's a, by profession, he is a chemical engineer. Uh, mashallah, tabarakallah, he lives here in the Chicago suburbs. He's also author of a book, uh, The Countenance of Man, um, which is a book, a very good read on Aqidah, and he can speak a little bit more about his book. Uh, may be available outside. Is, is it? It's available. Is it available at the bookstore? It's available at the bookstore. I'm not getting any, like, cut for this or anything. So, <laughs> And just, just mentioning The Provenance of Man uh, by Sheikh Tahseen Khan, uh, Sunni apologetic of the original creation of Adam Ali salatu salam. So take a, a look at this, mashallah, tabarakallah. He's also uh, an author. So um, just a little bit about our panelists. So maybe the crowd is not, uh, just in case the crowd isn't aware of who our panelists are. Um, then uh, next to me I have uh, Mufti Zishan Khan, who is currently the Imam at Majid Uthman, uh, a local masjid here in Lombard, Illinois. He's originally from Ohio, memorized the Quran here uh, at IIE, the Institute of Islamic Education in Elgin, uh, and then went on to complete the Alimiya program, as well as a specialization uh, in fiqh under Mufti Abrar Mirza. So, uh, mashallah, tabarakallah, he has a wealth of knowledge. Uh, he's also currently a member of the American Fiqh uh, Academy uh, that uh, researches um, current day contemporary issues uh, and, uh, you know, has resolutions, and you can check their website, very interesting resolutions and um, issues that the Ummah is dealing with today. So, mashallah, tabarakallah, we're very pleased to have them. I'm Usman Akhtar, I have um, the opportunity and the pleasure of serving here at Darus Salaam. Um, inshallah, I'll jump right back into uh, the question, so I'll, I'll send it back to um, Mufti Zishan. Uh, you, you early spoke, or spoke about the, um, in the time of the Prophet ﷺ, uh, how the Sahaba, they would hear the miracles, or the, hear the signs of the Day of Judgment, or hear a prophecy from the Prophet ﷺ, and then see it happen right in front of their eyes. So, I mean, just as a means of inspiration for us, can you mention uh, a, few of a few examples from the life of the Prophet ﷺ, where the Prophet ﷺ prophesied something, and it happened uh, in the lifetime of the Prophet Ali Salatu Salam. Yeah, Jazakumullah Khairan. Um, you know, as Sheikh Tahseen mentioned uh, regarding the you know degradation of knowledge, the degradation of authority. Uh, we you know we see that very pertinent, right? So th these are prophecies that the Prophet Sallallahu taught us many many years ago. Yet we see them coming to be. Um, on a daily basis, right? For example, we see um, uh, the hadith that he mentioned regarding the destitute, the unclothed, the naked, the poor, the shepherds. They're going to be competing in buildings, right? Building the tallest buildings, right? Building large and high buildings. We see that nowadays so evidently in front of us, right? Where's the tallest building in the world, right? They're all in the Middle East and they're competing to build the tallest building, not to call anyone out, of course, but if you see just a few hundred years ago, not even a few hundred years ago, just a hundred years ago, some of these places were barren land. And I remember I went to Dubai and I went to uh, the museum. They have like a national museum. 
And literally just a hundred years ago, people were living in very, very poor situations, right? Like they did not really have anything at all. If you go back 150 years, 200 years, it was just all desert, all desert. And now, subhanAllah, you see, you go there, there's uh, so many, so many tall buildings, high-rise building, and they have the tallest building as well, right? So we see these prophecies coming, um, we see them uh, coming to be in our lifetime. But at the time of the Prophet ﷺ, there were many, many prophecies that took place during his life as well, that he said, or shortly after he passed away, shortly after uh, the Sahaba radiallahu anhum, they were still alive, they saw these things happening. For example, the Prophet ﷺ, on one occasion, Nafi' ibn Utbah radiallahu anhu, he mentions that he heard the Prophet ﷺ telling a group of people that you will conquer Arabia, you will conquer Persia, you will conquer Rome, and you will defeat Dajjal. And, you know, if you think about this, at that time, the Quraysh, right, where they were living in Mecca or in Medina, shortly after when the Muslims moved to Medina, they were a very, very small group of people in relation to all of these different areas that the Prophet ﷺ was speaking about. You know, some of the ulama, they mention that it's as if, if you take like one of the poorest countries of the world today. Let's say you take Africa, for example. I think the, the poorest country in Africa is South Sudan or Chad, one of those two. I was actually looking it up a little bit earlier. Um, but I think it's South Sudan. Imagine someone from South Sudan saying that we're going to take over all of Africa. Right? Most likely people are going to say, yeah, that's kind of far-fetched. Right? That's not really going to happen. But the Prophet ﷺ, in a barren land, was saying that you're going to take over all of Arabia. And subhanAllah, shortly after, the Sahaba radiallahu anhum witnessed in their own lifetime. In their own lifetime. So Nafi' radiallahu anhu said that, you know, we saw this happening. We saw, um, uh, uh, we saw three of these happening, right? Jaziratul Arab was taken, the Roman Empire, the Persian Empire. But we just didn't see Dajjal. And they thought that that was going to happen right afterwards as well. Right? That's how much conviction they had in the Prophet ﷺ, but obviously that didn't happen yet. But they saw these things happening. I mean, imagine, imagine someone saying that we're going to take over all of Arabia. Islam is going to be spread all throughout Arabia. Yet they saw this in their own lifetime. Right? There's other examples. For, uh, you know, at the time of Badr, the Prophet ﷺ was walking around and he said, هذا مصرع فلان, هذا مصرع فلان, that this is going to be the falling place of such and such person, such, meaning such and such person is going to uh, die here, such and such person is going to die here during the battle. And they said that the people who the Prophet ﷺ said were going to die in those spots did not even die one arm's length away from those spots, meaning they died exactly in those spots. Right? We see, for example, um, uh, Fatima radiallahu anha, one time the Prophet ﷺ whispered something to her and she was crying. And then the Prophet ﷺ whispered something else to her and she was laughing, she was happy, she was smiling. So she, when she was asked about this, after the Prophet ﷺ passed away, she said that the thing that made her cry was that the Prophet ﷺ said that he was going to pass away soon. He was soon going to pass away. So obviously, she was his daughter. She was very sad. She started to cry. And then the Prophet ﷺ said that you are going to be the first person. You're going to be the first of my family that uh, is with me. Meaning you're going to pass away shortly after. First of all, let's pause there. How many of us would be happy hearing that you're going to pass away 
in a, you know, in a short time, right? Most likely you're not going to be happy. But Fatima radiallahu anha, she was so happy. Because that means that she's going to be with her father, the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam. So she was happy and this made her smile. And we see this happen. Out of all of the family members of the Prophet sallallahu the first one, even out of his wives, his children, well, she was the only child that was still alive when the Prophet sallallahu passed away. But the first one from his family who passed away after the Prophet sallallahu passed away was Fatima radiallahu anha, within about six months after the Prophet sallallahu passed away. So they saw these things. Whatever the Prophet sallallahu was prophesizing and he was talking about whatever he was saying, they saw these things happening right in front of their eyes. Um, and so, for example, uh, I'll share one more uh, hadith. Um Haram bint Milhan radiallahu anha. She said that the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam one time he went to sleep and he woke up and the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam said that, uh, you know, first of all he was smiling. So she said, what is making you smile? And he said, that some of my community were presented to me riding in the path of Allah. They were riding in the middle of the sea like kings on thrones. And so she said, you know, make dua that I'm from among them. And then the Prophet ﷺ went to sleep again. Then he woke up, he was smiling. And she said, what is making you smile? And he said the same thing. And she said, you know, make dua that I'm from them. You know, she wanted to be from among those blessed warriors that were going on the sea uh, in the path of Allah. And the Prophet ﷺ said that you're going to be from the, the, from the first group. What ended up happening was, during Muawiyah anhu's time, first of all, this was the first time that the Muslim army went on sea during the Khilaf of Muawiyah anhu. <coughs> and Um Haram bint Milhan was among that group. And not only that, but she even passed away during that group. So she was shaheed during that time. She passed away and she was a martyr during that time. So we see that all of these things that the Prophet ﷺ would say, the Sahaba ﷺ saw them firsthand, the ones that took place during their lifetime. Not just that, we see the ones that are happening among us right now, in our lifetime. Right? So this is a clear proof of the Prophet ﷺ's legitimacy. And this is something that uh, must have increased the Sahaba ﷺ. You know, imagine the, the, the spiritual fortitude that gave them. And of course, it gives us when we ponder over many of these things that take place during our lifetime. So may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, you know, we, we, we pray that uh, when we read these prophecies, they should be something that we ponder on, we ponder over, and we think about, you know, subhanAllah, how beautiful the message of the Prophet ﷺ was, that they certainly were true. Right? It goes back to, in the last point that I mentioned on this, uh, on this specific question, what Shaykh Tahseen uh, was speaking about, that why would the Prophet ﷺ jeopardize his mission by prophesizing something if he was not a true prophet? Right? If you're not a true prophet, you're not going to say this, this, this is going to happen because if it doesn't happen, people are going to say, oh, see, you're not a prophet. But when these things were happening and they still are happening and we see them in front of our eyes, this is truly a miracle of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Jazakumullah khairan. So inshallah we'll get started with uh, questions, try to um, incorporate and uh, have the uh, crowd engage. You can ask your questions like we mentioned. Um, that it's up on the screen. You can go to slido.com and enter the code 2253727. Uh, there's a question about interpretations of the signs of the Day of Judgment or interpretations of the ahadith in which the Prophet ﷺ prophesied about the signs of the Day of Judgment. So this is something that's interesting because I've kind of mentioned it before that interpretations are something 
that sometimes can change. The reason for this is that the sign or the day of judgment and the signs of the day of judgment, it will definitely happen. The day of judgment will definitely happen. It's qat'i, it's definitive. There's no way around it. Uh, the, the signs of the day of judgment through the ahadith that are authentic and mentioned in the books of ahadith will definitely happen. The interpretation though, how we interpret that, because we live in the context of our contemporary world, the, the, the interpretation may differ and it may change. So for example, like I mentioned, in the building of tall buildings, there perhaps may have been interpretations before this phenomena of building sky-rise sky buildings. Um, I remember when I was a child uh, and people would uh, interpret, actually, um, let's, let me take a different example. Uh, there's a hadith in which the Prophet ﷺ mentions, a time will come when a man leaves his house and his thigh will inform him what's going on at home. And so, you know, you can just imagine what someone that lived in, you know, the 15th century or the 16th century, what they could have thought about that or how they would have interpreted that. And differently today, you and I may interpret that or ulama may interpret that as our phones because we put them in our pockets and it's possible that when we leave our house, our thighs or our phones that are in our thighs or right in our pockets that are by our thighs inform us of what goes on. If the garage door opens, if somebody moves, uh, if there's motion in the living room, right? We know everything that's going or through text messages, we're figuring out what's going on, how? Uh, through our cell phones, which usually rest just around our thigh area. That's our interpretation of this phenomena in the context of our contemporary world. Can that interpretation change? Absolutely. Because our interpretation of it is, 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 is not definitive. It's, it's, it's something that's lunni. It's not definitive. It's something that is speculative. It's just our interpretation uh, of the hadith of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Um, I remember when we were children, and this is sometimes uh, one of the red flags. There was a question about red flags and the signs of the Day of Judgment as well, uh, or interpretation of the signs of the Day of Judgment. Sometimes one of the red flags, something that we want to look out for, uh, is that if someone's interpreting a sign of the Day of Judgment, um, and that interpretation doesn't fall in line with other ahadith of the Prophet ﷺ about that interpretation. For example, and there's another question, I'll kind of um, refer to it here. Um, someone may say, well, the Dajjal is not physical, the Dajjal is, you know, for example, the internet, or the Dajjal is an ideology. The Dajjal is, it's metaphorical, it's not physical. And so, if to accept that interpretation as a speculative, even to accept or to begin to accept it, we have to go through and filter the other hadith that the Prophet ﷺ mentions all of the different, uh, all of the different uh, factors that the Prophet ﷺ said about the Dajjal. And if they match up in all of them, then we can accept it as an interpretation. When we were children, people would say, and they wouldn't say it as a joke, Today, somebody may say it as a joke, you know, um, my phone is a Dajjal. But when we were children in the early 90s, uh, there were people that would literally say the TV or the screen is Dajjal. And they would try to prove it through a hadith. And they would say, well, you see, the Prophet ﷺ said, it has, the Dajjal has one eye. You know, look at the screen. It looks like one eye. 
You know, and some people will try to you know, make sense of this and say that it's Dajjal. But if you read through the other ahadith that the Prophet ﷺ mentions about the Dajjal, then that interpretation doesn't make sense. Because for example, the Prophet ﷺ said that Dajjal will not be able to enter Mecca or Medina. And there are TVs in Mecca and Medina. It's not like, you know, you're walking in or driving in with a, with a TV and there's some magnetic force and, you know, the TV is not allowed into Mecca or Medina. There's nothing like that. Or, for example, in the hadith, we find that the Prophet ﷺ said that the Dajjal will have a kaf, a fa, and a yura written on his forehead. It will be able to be seen. It will be, a mu'min will be able to see that it will say kafir, on the forehead of the Dajjal. My TV, your TV doesn't have kafir written on it. It might say like, you know, Samsung or something like that. But your TV doesn't say kafir on it, right? It might say Samsung, Sony, something like that. So it doesn't match up with the ahadith that are authentic ahadith. And so an interpretation like that would be something that we wouldn't accept. And that's one of the red flags. Sometimes you'll hear an interpretation of a hadith or an interpretation of the signs of the Day of Judgment, a miracle, or a prophecy of the Prophet ﷺ, and it just doesn't match up. If it doesn't match up, then uh, with the ahadith of the Prophet ﷺ, then it's something that uh, we don't accept. So yes, to answer the question in the past, interpretations have changed. They will change. Why? Because we interpret it according to the contemporary context of the world that we live in and that's something that's constantly changing um, and some of the red flags you want to watch out for um, interpretations that don't line up with the ahadith of the Prophet ﷺ. in the past it's very interesting um, you know for example in 1979 there was a man who claimed to be the Mahdi and he took over the Haram uh, and, and what he tried to do he was kind of a step ahead he read through the ahadith right and then he tried to do exactly what the hadith says to act as if he's the Mahdi. Right? So the Mahdi will come from Medina to Mecca and he did exactly that and he will be from the family of the Prophet and he was through a subcategory from a tribe. He was Qahtani, which is a break off or an offshoot of a Qurayshi from the family of the Prophet. And his name was Muhammad ibn Abdullah, like the Prophet ﷺ said, he will share my name. And so, Allah alam if he ever got a name change, but he, his name was Muhammad ibn Abdullah at that time. And so he tried to follow all of it, um, but one thing he didn't follow, and this is very important, especially about Mahdi. I mean, it's happened many times. You can ask Mufti Azimuddin. Sometimes Mufti Azimuddin will come into a staff. It happened a few months ago. He came into a staff meeting and he looked so disturbed. He said, Mufti Sahib, what happened? He said, somebody came into my office, gave me a long lecture, told me he's the Mahdi. Right? <laughs> so it happens all the time. People claim that they're the Mahdi. But the one thing that, uh, you know, Qahtani in 1979, uh, and, and I see uh, uh, one of my good friends here whose father was actually in the Haram in 1979 and he told us the story from beginning to end. He was one of the people that was entrapped in the Haram when that whole fiasco happened. Um, so one of, the one thing he left out was that he will not, he will want to stay away from being known as the one. He will not want leadership. And this is kind of a, a sign of a true leader that he won't want to be called, he will actually avoid being, be, being made the leader of the ummah. And it will be a time of chaos like we find in the hadith of the Prophet ﷺ. And so for someone to say, well, no, I am the Mahdi and wants to be it, well, that in and of itself is um, a sign, a red flag. Another red flag is a lot of times we hear um, 
people make predictions, right? Like 2030, you know, vision 2030, 2030, the Dajjal is coming. You know, people throw out predictions. Like, when do you think it is? 2025. When do you think it is? You know, and, and when I was uh, Imam back in Connecticut, I had a Musalli. Uh, he was very into eschatology and the signs of the Day of Judgment. And he would read all of the hadith and, um, you know, he was so very, very interested. He'd come up with these ahadith, like, I read this. And, you know, alhamdulillah, I had the, the, the ability to, to study some ahadith. And I'd say, I've never, like, I've read through, alhamdulillah, heard thousands and thousands and thousands of ahadith. I've never heard this. And alhamdulillah, he was a very honest and sincere uh, individual. And alhamdulillah, I got to guide him and mention, make, make clear to him those ahadith you can accept, those you can accept, those that are completely fabricated. Once he brought a hadith that had the name of like Adolf Hitler in it, and like Allahu A'lam, all these names. He's looked, the Prophet mentioned these names in a hadith. I said, brother, like, hold on, let me see what you're talking about here. So one of the red flags is also, so he was one of those, mashallah, tabarakallah, I think it's this year, I think it's that year. Um, and um, I, I, I would advise him and I advise everyone that that's one of the red, red flags is that you don't want to make a prediction. What you do want to do, I mean, you can try and think, I don't know, it, we're curious and it's entertaining. We like to hear about it uh, and it fulfills that entertainment aspect uh, of like what's going to happen. Um, that's there in and of itself. But the real thing that it, it should push us towards is action. Right, is in preparing for the Day of Judgment. And mashallah, tabarakallah, I give it to that brother. That was something I could never knock him on. He was in the first saf every day for five days, five, five times a day. First saf, first person behind me as the imam. And he was, he would never, and he just increased in his action, increased in his action. To the extent that I told him, your uh, passion and your, uh, your love for this science and this field is, is beautiful as long as it's guided and, and you know of what to avoid and as long as your main purpose is in preparing for the Day of Judgment. And so that's another, so that's a red flag that I wanted to mention. You know, like it's, it's going to happen like this. People coming up with their own predictions of how things are going, stay away from it and make sure that our main focus um, is preparing uh, for the Day of Judgment, preparing for when these signs do take place. If we find ourselves engrossed in listening and hearing and reading and making predictions and all of these things but find ourselves lacking in amal then it may be wise to even avoid that and first work on our amal to first work on our actions on our salah on our ibadah on our recitation of quran improving as a muslim because that's more more important than anything else yes in it of itself naturally there's that curious aspect in us as human beings that we want to fulfill that's all well and fine um, and it's also comforting as an ummati of the prophet we see what's happening around the world may allah subhanahu wa ta'ala uh, help uh, our muslim brothers and sisters around the world when we see these things of course immediately our thoughts go to what's going to happen. Um, but as a Muslim, the signs and the miracles that the Prophet ﷺ told us are actually a source of comfort. They're actually a source of consolement. Things will get bad. The ummah will be in chaos. There will be zina committed. And there will be major sins committed. And people will leave salah. And Quran will be taken away from the hearts of the ummah. All of these things we can hear about but it should be a means of consolement for us as long as we are on our deen, things will get bad. But the Prophet ﷺ has told us things will get bad. Just like a patient who's told, like you have cancer, 
He may be even told, you only have six weeks to live. He'll be happy that he's been told. There's a sense of comfort in knowing what's going to happen, even if it's bad. And so as an ummati of the Prophet ﷺ, it's comforting, it's consoling for us that we know what's going to happen and we know what to do to stay away from the evil of the, the fitan that will appear and to be from amongst those that are saved and protected from it and uh, you know, eventually, inshallah, be successful, inshallah. So uh, we'll continue with the questions that are coming in. I'm going to hand the mic over uh, to Sheikh Tahseen, this next question is um, in regards to um, the moon being split. So uh, the question asks, uh, did other cities or countries record the miraculous event when the Prophet ﷺ split the moon? Um, is there evidence in historical books? Uh, and then he mentions, for, for example, NASA proves that the moon shows no evidence of, of being split. How can we reconcile, reconcile this with what we know for a fact that the Prophet ﷺ did? So with regards to the first question about the moon splitting, uh, if there's any recorded evidence for it uh, outside of the Muslim community, I do recall hearing that uh, other communities in the world also saw it. I never researched or looked into the matter to... Uh, you know, to see what the authenticity of that claim is. Nevertheless, I think what is important here is to mention that uh, in Shiqaq al-Qamar, the splitting of the moon is from the, those matters that are mutawatirat, those matters that are mass transmitted, as mentioned by Ibn Kathir in his Mu'jizat al-Nabi uh, book. Uh, he lists this as those matters that have been mass transmitted. What does that mean? It means that this was an incident that the Sahaba and even, uh, or even non-Sahaba who witnessed it saw this event take place in such a great number and then they in turn informed other people and then they informed others after them to the extent that we have mass transmission taking place of this event that will uh, impart uh, to the listener that this uh, knowledge that this indeed has taken place. And so this is enough proof for us. Remember, the same people who narrated the Qur'an to us are the same people who have seen this event, who narrated this event. We shouldn't lose sight of that. That, oh, you know, aside from them, did anybody else see it in the world? There's no real, quest there's no real need, genuine need to ask that question. I understand where, where it's coming from, but if you dig deeper within yourself and you ask yourself, if they themselves witnessed it in mass and mass, and these are the same people that the Qur'an validates as being uh, true believers. And these are the same people that narrated the Qur'an to us. Are you now going to also judge and cast doubt upon the authenticity of the Qur'an too? No. And so that's important to keep in mind. As for the question, the related question of NASA found that there was no... I, I'm not aware of that study. If somebody is, I, I would like to see it because um, I'm, to what extent did they study that? That's number one. What, to what extent did they determine that there could have never been a splitting of this moon? And number two, when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala puts the moon back together, does it then have to show signs of a fracture afterwards? Is that necessary? No, it's not necessary. It could have been a perfect fit and then sealed 
And so if somebody is looking for an evidence for like a, a seam or something, that need not be the case. So that it's a, those two questions are very important to ask. Jazakumullah khairan, Sheikh Tahseen. Another question has come in in regards to um, our stance. Uh, when we do come across someone that denies uh, the prophetic miracles of the Prophet Ali Sallallahu Alaihi um, what stance should we be, uh, should we take? What stance should we take when we encounter a denier of the Prophet's Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam's miracles? So for this one, inshallah, I'll uh, hand it over to Mufti Zishan. So it really depends on <coughs> your relationship with that person, right? If you are someone that is close to that individual and you feel like you engaging with that individual in a discussion and trying to explain to them um, will have an impact on them, then of course you should try to do so. Like let's say they're your relative or your friend or something like that, you know, you could have a discussion with them. Um, but you should also realize that there's a certain limit Right, there's a certain limit of engaging with someone in a discussion where you, you, know, you may end up either getting convinced to the opposite if you're not well-grounded in what you're trying to convince the person of, or you may actually just do a bad job at presenting your side to the point where this person is now even more staunch in what he believes. That, see, you couldn't answer these questions, you can't answer this. So I think it's important for people to realize that they don't have to engage in debates with everyone, right? You can refer that person to the scholar. And that's, as a matter of fact, what you should do. Refer that person that, you know what, why don't you go speak to this scholar? Why don't you go speak to this learned individual that, you know, may be able to explain to you. They may be able to answer it better than I can, right? So it really depends on your relationship with that person. If just having a friendly discussion with them, you know, is your friend or something like that, fine. But if it's someone that you know, you feel is going to be more firm if you're not able to answer their questions, you probably should not engage with them and just, you know, have them speak to someone that is more learned, right? Uh, uh, push them onto a scholar or get them in connection, in, uh, get, get them connected with a scholar who can answer um, some of their questions. Um, I think that's, that's very important for us to realize what our limit is, right? Like if we're able to actually have an effect or we're not. And if we're not, then we can get them in contact with someone who inshallah can. Do you want to add to that? All right, inshallah. Jazakum Allah There's a question in regards to how prophecies of the Prophet Ali relate to the concept of personal eschatology or the individual's journey towards the afterlife in Islam. In Islam, um, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala created us as, as souls um, and then asked all of us not just us, but every human being from the time of Adam والسلام, to the last human being that will be born. Every soul was asked by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in Jannah, Lestu bi rabbikum, am I not your Lord? And everyone said, Bala. So if you just think about that, the creation of our souls in Jannah, and the fact that everyone accepted Islam, everyone accepted Allah, not just accepted Islam, but accepted Allah as our Lord. Lestu bi rabbikum, am I not your Lord? And everyone said yes. So from Adam والسلام, uh, all of the prophets, the sahaba, the tabi'een, taba tabi'een, Muslim, non-Muslim, the rulers, the oppressors, the celebrities, the athletes, us, everyone was in Jannah at one point and our souls were created and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala asked us and we all accepted Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala as our Lord. Now, the journey of our souls 
it's a whole talk on its own. I'll just very simply summarize it. The fact that our souls were created, it's something that you, you know, uh, sometimes makes us think. The fact that we're created, we will always exist. Right? Now, this dunya may end, but our souls will always exist. Once Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala created our souls in Jannah, we were comfortable in Jannah, and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala then transferred our souls to the wombs of our mothers. When they was transferred to the wombs of our mothers, just that transfer, it's a very difficult transfer. Uh, we spend time in the womb of our mothers, that's the second step or the second stage of the journey of our souls. And then we're born into this life. So this world is the third step or the third stage of the journey of our souls. This life that we're in now, we hear about it all the time, it's a very short life. This body that we have is a very temporary body. Um, it's only around, it's just a conveyance for us really to get from uh, this world to the hereafter. Um, and so our souls will continue, but our bodies of course are just for the duration of the time that we're in this dunya. The, the, the signs of the Day of Judgment pertain to the last portion of of our life here and then the afterlife so the signs and uh, you know all of the um, the signs and the prophecies that the prophet sallallahu mentioned uh, is basically getting all of the souls from this alam the, the 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 realm of the world and the realm of barzakh for those that have passed away into the realm of the akhirah um, and then from there it's either jannah or the fire of jahannam may allah subhanahu wa ta'ala protect us and so the, the, the signs and the prophecies only pertain to uh, the exact end of the end, the, the, the realm of the dunya or the realm of the, of the barzakh for those, the intermediary stage between this dunya and the hereafter and the beginning uh, of the next stage. That's really the, the connection um, of the, the prophecies that the Prophet ﷺ mentioned. It's, it's the end of this dunya and the beginning of the akhirah. Um, I'm going <clears> to <throat> switch it back to um, Sheikh Tahseen, uh, there's a question in regards to uh, what she, uh, something that Sheikh Tahseen had mentioned. So, so uh, the question reads, Sheikh Tahseen had mentioned that miracles would never be from a category that contradicts rationality. However, wouldn't mi'raj not fall in that category. So I'll give this to Sheikh Tassin again just to uh, repeat the question. Um, we mentioned that miracles would never be from a category that contradicts rationality. However, doesn't mi'raj uh, fall under that category? So remember what we said that how we define rationality here. We didn't define rationality what you have difficult in conceiving in your mind. We specifically define rationality by first principles, first logical principles, like the principle of identity, principle of non, uh, uh, the law of non of non contradiction, these are the the uh, the principles that we're using. Just because we haven't witnessed something, it doesn't mean that it's rationally impossible. Yes, normally impossible. Yes, for sure. Like I mentioned, the example of seeing green clouds. It's not something that we see every day. But can we conceive the idea of a green cloud? Yes, we can. Can you conceive, for I know many people have just walked in, so I'll repeat the same example that I used earlier, which is that on the flip side, when it comes to rationally impossible things, can you conceive of that car right there on the road? And if I say to you that that car is both simultaneously, 
at motion, in motion and at rest? Can you conceive of that? A car is both in motion and at rest with respect to the same plane, respect to the ground that it's on. Can you conceive of that? No, you can't. And the reason for why you cannot conceive of that is because your mind rationally understands what the meaning of the word motion is, it understands what the meaning of rest is, and it understands that these two are contradictory. And so two contradictions cannot conjointly exist in the same moment. And so your mind rejects the possibility of that, that it can never be the case. And this is why I said miracles do not come to create a break in that which is rationally impossible. No. No prophet has ever said that, that he will do a miracle that will break uh, that which is rationally impossible. It was always a rupture in that which is normally impossible. So now if you, if you take the question for Mi'raj, uh, what is rationally impossible about a man going into space and further onwards? If somebody wants to answer that, then they can feel free to. Go ahead. Okay. <laughs> That's the right answer. <laughs> so there is nothing rationally impossible with a man going um, into the heavens. If somebody feels that that is rationally impossible, as per the definition that we've given, then you know, feel free to Send it in into the, uh, the questionnaire. All right, inshallah. Jazakumullah khairan. Uh, moving on, there's a question in regards to uh, the tabi'een. So it mentions, why don't we see as many miracles as the tabi'een, those that followed or saw the sahaba radiallahu anhum, who reportedly saw more miracles than the sahaba? Don't we need them more than tabi'een to strengthen our faith. So the first uh, part of the question where it mentions uh, that the tabi'een saw more miracles than the sahaba, I would, I would beg to differ. I mean, they saw the Prophet Ali salatu wasalam, they went, witnessed Badr, they witnessed so many great miracles at the hands of the Prophet Ali salatu wasalam. That's an objective thing. Maybe we can, and even then, we, would, we can kind of list them out. I don't have an Excel sheet of the uh, miracles that the sahaba saw versus the miracles that the tabi'een saw. Um, but then the second part of the question, uh, don't we need them more than the tabi'een to strengthen our faith? So I, I would answer this in this way. <clears throat> we shouldn't depend on miracles um, for action in our faith. The Qur'an, the sunnah of the Prophet ﷺ, the prophecies that we see and we have are more than enough for us to believe in Islam. In fact, believing in miracles or... In, uh, in, in, in miracles of the Prophet of course, is, a, is a, a part of our iman. But over-believing in them sometimes can lead, and not, in, not over-believing in the miracles of the Prophet, but over-believing in things that are supernatural or seem to be supernatural. Uh, for example, somebody touching someone in today's day and age and curing them, or somebody uh, doing something that seems supernatural, our faith shouldn't depend on that. In fact, our teachers used to say, a lot of times we hear that um, when we pray salah, you should feel the sweetness of salah and all of that, which is true. It would be amazing if we felt the sweetness of sajda and the sweetness of ibadah to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. But 
hypothetically, if a person's not feeling that sweetness, are you still going to pray? Are you still obligated to pray despite the fact that you may not feel sweetness of iman in your sajda? Are we still, is it still obligatory for us to pray? Yes, absolutely. So we don't depend on the sweetness in salah for us to pray. In the same way, we shouldn't depend on miracles to upkeep our faith. Um, we should, however, if that's a need, then read the life of the, the, the Sahaba radiallahu anhum, read the life of the Prophet see what's going on in the world around us, see the remaining miracles or the remaining prophecies of the Prophet and see them being fulfilled right in front of our eyes. Like for example, I mean just in January, we, we uh, had the opportunity to perform Umrah and uh, as we're going from Jeddah to Mecca, and anyone that's been for Umrah recently, maybe Allah A'lam, but in, in January at least, after the, the winter break, the mountains that were normally black or dark brown from Jeddah to Mecca were absolutely green. They're littered with green. And I was taken aback, and for a moment I thought this is some like Vision 2030, like, you know, project maybe they painted it green you know because it looked absolutely unnatural right and anyone can attest to this if you've been there recently it looked absolutely it looked absolutely unnatural i said you know this is some painting or you know maybe the landscapers did something or put down some turf and i was a little bit amazed i took some videos and i was kind of like scratching my head about it and then I asked people around in Mecca, the bus drivers, the people, the locals, I said, is this like part of, like, what do they do, like spray paint it? You know, sometimes like in like NFL games, they'll spray the, uh, spray the grass, or even landscapers nowadays, they'll spray the grass to make it look, you know, a, a different green. He said, no. He said, it's been raining so much and we've never seen so much grass. It's, it's what's led to the grass growing uh, in, in, on, uh, you know, in the deserts of Mecca. And so it, immediately reminded me of the hadith of the Prophet ﷺ. And the Prophet ﷺ mentioned that uh, the Day of Judgment won't happen until the deserts uh, return back to Anharan, will turn back to uh, valleys and rivers. It's something that uh, the Prophet ﷺ prophesies. Now, scientifically, if you look at it, yes, the earth goes through changes every so you know, thousands of years, the earth goes through changes where hot places and become cold or cold places become hot. It's just something that happens within the earth. And there was a time before where the Prophet ﷺ mentioned the, the deserts of Arabia will turn back to valleys and meadows, which means at one point it was valleys and meadows. And through scientific research, he found out there was a time and the earth does go through these changes. So seeing things like this obviously bring that spark of faith uh, uh, and iman into our hearts. And Mufti uh, would like to add something. I also wanted to add something to that as well. <clears throat> that if someone were to question, like, why don't we see as many signs uh, nowadays or as many prophecies as the Tabi'in saw, why do we need more, right? We already have them in our books. We already saw that they've come to be, right? This kind of reasoning is very similar to like the Bani Israel, right? Who always wanted more signs, more signs, more signs. We already have, we see the incidents that took place you know, we, we read about them, what they took place during the time of the Prophet ﷺ, what took place during the time of the Tabi'een, what took place up until now, and we see the ones that are happening now. If we question, like, why don't we have more signs than them, then the people who come after us are going to say, why didn't we have more signs than the people in 2023? It's just going to be, you know, continuing onwards, right? So, 
the, our perspective on this should be that, you know, subhanAllah, we already seen so many of the prophecies of the Prophet already come true. We're seeing them still coming true. There are still some yet to come true as well. But all of these should encourage or, or, or be a means of us having, you know, fortifying our, that, that spiritual fortitude that we were talking about earlier, as well as preparing for the hereafter, right? Preparing for the Day of Judgment, as Mona Uthman mentioned earlier. Actually, the, the objection uh, is something that even the Sahaba heard from the Kuffar, where they asked why the Prophet ﷺ couldn't bring other miracles um, that they had in mind or other miracles that previous Prophets brought. And then Allah Subh'anaHu Wa Taala answers this objection in, a, in an ayah where he says, لَمْ يُؤْمِنُوا بِهِ أَوَّلَ مَرْوَةً That they didn't even, they didn't, they rejected the sign in, uh, uh, the first time, they rejected it again. And so it's not about the quantity or the nature of the miracle. They will continuously reject it. And so that was one reason for why their uh, request for more miracles or the request for other types of miracles was rejected. But remember what we said before that, according to Imam Anawi's research, the Prophet وسلم, around 1,200 miracles were, were, uh, were uh, happened at his hands. But yet, even 1,200 was not enough for them. Jazakumullah khairan. Unfortunately, we've run out of time. There are a few questions left. Feel free for those whose questions were not answered uh, to approach our panelists at a time that's appropriate. Uh, and if they're comfortable, inshallah, you can, uh, they can answer your questions. Uh, Salah is at five. We've gone over time, so I apologize. One uh, very important uh, uh, just announcement. Inshallah, tonight uh, we'll be having a recital amongst ulama. We'll be reciting all of Bukhari. Um, this is something that Ibn Hajar rahimahullah as well as other scholars have mentioned that at a time of calamity if like we recite Quran to attract the mercy of Allah through uh, experiences and through, um, uh, through previous uh, tajruba uh, scholars have seen that the recital of, uh, of Bukhari um, the most authentic kitab ba'da kitab Allah after the book of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is a means of removing calamities and difficulties from the ummah so while tonight's session is going on, uh, a few, not few, but many ulama from the Chicagoland area, as well as others, uh, will be convening and, and privately reciting all of uh, Bukhari, um, and all of the Sahihul Bukhari. And inshallah, we'll have a khatam at the end, a khatam dua uh, that will conclude tonight's program, inshallah. So you don't want to miss that, something that our pious predecessors have written about, uh, and something that we see in today's day and age, the Ummah going through a very difficult time, anything that can attract the mercy of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to alleviate the difficulty of our brothers and sisters around the world. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala accept your coming here. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala make our coming here a means of ease, uh, of difficulty for 